And you said Marcy Ventures, if I heard you right. I believe you might have mentioned before that this is Jay-Z's fund. Did I get that right? Yes. So Jay-Z is one of the co-founders in Marcy. Yes. That's amazing. Hey, podcast listener. Welcome to the Eco D2C podcast, where we pick apart the strategies and growth journeys behind today's most successful mission-driven businesses. Even if you feel alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right here in your earbuds, you are joined by other entrepreneurs and leaders seeking to grow their businesses and impact on the world. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, check out ecod2c.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eco D2C podcast, where we interview the founders and growth strategists behind today's most successful natural companies. I'm here with Denise Woodward. Denise, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. So Denise is the founder and CEO of Partake, a line of nationally distributed allergy-friendly foods inspired by her daughter's experience with food allergies. Launched in 2017, Partake's first product now be found in over 7,000 retailers, including Target, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and more. And in December of last year, Partake closed a Series A round of funding. And of the 7.5 million Denise has raised, over half of that has come from Black investors. Denise spent a decade in consumer packaged goods at various Fortune 100 companies and is the first Black woman to raise more than 1 million publicly for a CPG food startup. Denise, I've got so many things that I'm excited to dive in with you about. But first, I'd like you to tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. One of the things that people don't know about me is that I am a terrible baker. You would think that with a cookie company and a line of cookies and baking mixes, I would be a phenomenal baker. I think I I had a very strong vision for what I wanted for my daughter and was able to thankfully find a food scientist angel who was able to help bring it to life. But I am a terrible baker. That is interesting. How many times have you given bacon a crack? Or have you always... A lot. A lot? I, I will say our five-in-one baking mix has made it a lot easier. I actually made some muffins on a whim this morning for my daughter with it. And we had, what did we have? Breakfast cookies made with it two days ago. And so I will say that product has made my life easier. But generally, I'm a mm-hmm. terrible from scratch baker. Interesting. And so for those who are unfamiliar, so I know I already gave just a little bit about Partake, but can you tell us just a little bit more about your company and and where it is today? Sure. So we make allergy-friendly cookies and baking mixes. You can find us in over 7,000 retailers, including Kroger and Target and Sprouts and Whole Foods across the country. We are a team of 16 based in New York City. We are a woman-led, Black-owned business, and we're excited about changing the landscape of the natural foods industry and really championing inclusivity in this space. And tell me a little bit about the early days. Like, What was the genesis of this brand? Sure. So I left my career in corporate America in August of 2017 to launch Partake. We launched with three SKUs of cookies as a self-funded and self-distributed brand. So I was using my family's savings and selling cookies out of my car for nearly a year, doing hundreds of demos. And it was a really valuable experience because I got to talk to our consumers firsthand about why they were buying our product, what they liked about it, what they wanted to see differently. And that's really what helped form the product that you see today. Can you talk to me a little bit about the strategy of that early growth? I understand that you're doing a lot of demos. Can you describe, you know, what the process of these demos were and how you really how you bootstrapped and what you leaned into early on? Sure. So I thought it was important to have an initial core geographic area where we had some strength. It was easy to do that in New York, I think, because it was close to me geographically. It's where I'm based. And there's enough of an independent food scene in terms of independent food stores that I could build up a critical mass between natural food stores and bodegas here. 
And the demos I found to be so important because, you know, I started the company for what I thought my family was missing. And I surveyed, I did some really rudimentary surveys of other moms to see what they wanted to see in the market. But as I got out and did the demos and talked to hundreds of consumers, I learned a lot about what people liked and didn't like about our product. We were able to bootstrap it because I was the only employee and we weren't spending a ton on marketing. It was a ton of time. It was definitely an exhausting grind. It was me doing demos every day. It was my husband going after work to do demos. It was us working local food festivals. But because of that, and because we came out of the gate with a premium price point, we had a margin that could support the business. So just to get into that a little deeper. So some of the brands listening might be wondering, okay, so you know, go, they went and did demos at you know, a lot of different places and you're really talking with your customer and really getting to know them quite well and getting a lot of that early critical feedback. Can you give us an example of what a typical demo looked like, like where you would set up, like what the setup would be and an example of you know some customer feedback that was incorporated pretty early on? Sure. I mean, the demo is as basic as you can expect. It was a table that I purchased on Amazon with a $5 tablecloth and little demo cups and my boxes of cookies that I would break the cookies in half because I couldn't afford to give a person a whole cookie. And I would set up and I, I would have a picture of my daughter and myself on the table. And I would explain why I was doing what I was doing and what we thought made our product different. The feedback that we got informed what our current, what our packaging looks like. Our initial packaging, for lack of better words, was quite a bit more granola. It was like craft paper background with muted colors. And people were like, you know, the story that you're telling me is so vibrant and celebratory, but the box doesn't match that. So that was one piece of feedback that we incorporated pretty quickly into to making some changes. Where were you setting these demos up? Were these outside like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and these kinds of places? Like, how did you decide on what customer market to get in front of? And did, were you giving them like phone calls? Like, hey, do you mind? Like, were you in the parking, would, like, parking lot? Like, what was I was In the front of the natural food store, I would go to the natural food store with a sell sheet and a sample. And I would say, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is my product. Will you put us on shelf? And as a part of my pitch, I would say, I'm going to support the brand. I want it to do well. And I would come back and do demos. And so I would set up inside the store close to the point of purchase so mm -hmm. people could then purchase the product and it would be supporting the retailer. And it was a lot of independent natural food stores in New York. It was accounts like Zabar's, Forager's, Brooklyn Fair, Brooklyn Market, stores like that. Was it tough to convince them to let you come in? And had you already sold them as like retail partners? Were they already carrying your product? Or was the conversation along the lines of like, well, we don't might not have space for you right now, but if you want to set up shop, go ahead. I would go in and I would sell the product so that they would carry it on shelf at that okay. moment. I mean, these okay. are independent one-off stores where the owner is making the decision though. So very different sales mm -hmm. cycle than some of the customers we're working with now. And then I would come back that same evening or the next weekend, and then I would set up shop and do a demo and try to sell that product that I had initially sold in in the initial order. Did you find that your customer demographic assumptions were, were challenged? The change, were you like right on target right from the start? They were challenged quickly. And what I learned in that initial target and in the initial demos, I think, is still holding true even as the brand has scaled some. I started the company as a food allergy mom who was frustrated and I thought we would be serving other food allergy families. And through the demos, I learned that there were a lot of other people who wanted to be gluten-free or plant-based by choice, not necessarily out of medical necessity. 
people whose kids didn't have food allergies, but wanted a snack that would allow all kids to participate that was school safe, people who wanted to support a woman or minority owned business. And so it really opened my eyes to how much broader our business could be than I originally set out for. Okay. So you're in stores, you're doing demos, you're getting into these local independent stores, you're getting your your first exposure for the brand. What was the next inflection point? My goal in that first year was to get into 50 stores by the end of the year. We launched in August and I wanted to be in 50 independent natural stores with strong performance. And so we achieved that goal and I started going after regional grocers. And so we went into a region of Whole Foods, the Southwest region. And then we went into a subset of Wegmans stores in the summer of 2018. Okay. So you got wider distribution. Yep. Wider distribution outside of the New York market. So was the strategy at that point largely just getting into more and more stores? You know, this was just a couple of years back. Was digital part of the strategy yet? You know, how would you describe that era of the business? So the strategy, I knew that it was going to take capital, outside capital to sustain the business. And at that point, a lot of the angel investors that I was speaking with wanted to know, like, why aren't you in Whole Foods? Why aren't you in a conventional chain? So it felt like an important proof point to go get into those more well-respected retailers rather than the independent natural stores. I feel like maybe some investors weren't putting as much weight on, particularly those two retailers have data portals also where you could see how you're performing. We couldn't afford syndicate data. So it allowed us to create a sell story that we could then sell to investors to be able to raise our initial round of funding. You asked another part of the question and I forgot. It's <laughs> so mushy. Um, no, no I worries. Remember it. Like how would you describe the era of the bit? And it sounds like you're very much answering that question. It sounds like at that point in time, you know, the whole strategy was gaining wider distribution, getting into larger and larger retailers, and then trying to position yourself for investment. Yes. And you asked about digital as well. So yes, digital definitely to get into more retailers, mm-hmm. but I wanted to be very selective about the retailers. Retailers mm-hmm. that seemed to be progressive, where demos were supported because we didn't have much of a marketing strategy beyond that, where I had some sort of geographic presence or I had family members there to help kind of merchandise in the store. So it wasn't just grow distribution. It was grow distribution with the right retailers that we felt like would be attractive to investors. And that would give us the data that we needed to tell the story. And And from a digital perspective, my background is more in traditional CPG. So I was used to working with food service or alternative channel accounts or retailers. I didn't have much experience in digital. And so I didn't feel comfortable playing there. And as a team of one, my hands were pretty busy with the stores that we were in. So we sold our products on Amazon, but other than kind of like sit there and watch what happened, we didn't have a very robust digital strategy. Right. Just like launch the listings, don't invest too much in advertising, just, you know, have that social proof and the brand discovery opportunity that comes from just having a presence and then focus everything on retail expansion. Exactly. Did you find that getting into, did you find that placements like shelf placement was pretty critical or was it mostly just getting into places that shared your values and being able to get in front of the customer to do these demos? Like at this point, is it, I guess another two-part question, how much did placement in the store factor or not factor into it? And at this point, was it just you doing the demos or do you have a team of people helping with this? We had an outsourced team when we launched Whole Foods in the Southwest. My husband's family's from Texas. So I called heavily upon my brother-in-law to do demos for us. Thankfully, he obliged. And then we found a wonderful team in New York that we still work with that did those demos for us. I'm really bad with two-part questions, Luke. I answered the second part and the first part. (laughs) Did you find that placement on the shelves was critical? 
So I will say as a very small emerging brand, we didn't have a lot of say in the placement on shelf. And I think that we now have a bit more sophistication to be able to tell the story of how we perform when we're in a gluten-free set versus how we perform in a conventional set. But because we picked retailers where we would demo heavily, I don't think it negatively impacted us. Okay. And so the strategy, if I'm getting this right, would be you get into every progressive retailer that you get into, you know, you have this partner and you have people in your own corner who are helping doing demos. And imagine once you get into it, it's demo after demo after demo to raise the sales there, which then positions you to get into another retailer, rinse, wash, repeat. To an extent, yes. So we did that. And then we went the next summer and raised first round of institutional funding, we raised a million dollars that was led by Marcy Venture Partners. Mm-hmm. And as we started to partner with more national retailers, so we launched Target nationally as our first kind of big retailer launch after that investment. And, you know, the demo strategy and the get your brother-in-law to show up at the store doesn't work as much there. And so we had to get a bit more sophisticated. And then we did start to lean more on digital in the retailer partnerships that we were looking at. And as the timing would have it, we raised that round in the summer of 2019. And we went into these retailers in the spring of 2020 as COVID was shutting down the country. And so that demo, demo, demo strategy wouldn't have worked anyway. So thank goodness we were looking at like, you know, how can we be more digital forward as we expand our distribution? And you said Marcy Ventures, if I heard you right, I believe you might have mentioned before that this is Jay-Z's fund. Did I get that right? Yes. So Jay-Z is one of the co-founders in Marcy. Yes. That's amazing. And so that fund was used for, where did that money go exactly? So we were still a team of one. We expanded the team some. We brought on a director of operations and a director of sales. We used the money for marketing to be able to invest in some of that digital that I spoke about. And then we also invested in kind of support our working capital needs. Like we thought we would get a few hundred Target stores and they ended up giving us the entire chain. And so, you know, while there's non-dilutive financing options available, we also relied on some of the equity financing that we raised to be able to support that. So if the amount of stores are, you know, one of your best metrics for growth here, how many stores were you in before funding and how many in the period afterwards? Sure. So when we received that funding in June of 2019, we finished that year in 350 stores and then we finished 2020 in 5,000 stores. That's pretty explosive. It was a busy year. Yeah, I can only imagine on the back end how much you must have been fleshing out your team during that time just to keep up with the demand and the new partnerships. How would you describe the period since then? Has it largely been just, you know, continued? You've gotten into a lot of the big national chains at this point. What's the period looked like since then in terms of expansion? Like how did, you know, you go from 350 stores to 5,000 stores. Are you still just chasing down like more and more retailers? Like what happens once you reach 5,000 plus? How does the strategy shift or stay the same? So we added a couple thousand more. We went into all banners of Kroger at the start of 2021, but we are now really focused on deepening those retailer relationships, whether that's introducing new innovation, which we'll start to see in the market next year Mm -hmm. with some of our retail partners. We did need to take the time to build out the team. We are a team of 16 now. We were one person at the start of 2020 and five people at the end of 2020. So the team has grown quite a bit in a remote work period during a period of very fast growth. I want to make sure that the team, you know, kind of gets their sea legs under them before we have another crazy year. What else have we been working on? We grew the distribution. We added a new product line of baking mixes that are available right now only as a D2C offering. 
And we've been exploring how we can meet our consumers in other places besides the store. You can find our cookies on American Airlines now, lots of workplaces in airports. And so thinking about how we can meet our customers where they live, work and play and not just where they grocery shop. At what point do you start thinking to yourself, let's look at airplanes? Our consumer does things other than grocery shops. So how do we meet them in other places so they can get introduced to our brand, so they can trial our brand, so that they do go grocery shop, they'll recognize us and pick us up off shelf. So I think that there's a lot of brand building that can happen in these non-traditional retail chains. And then pragmatically, I think oftentimes a lot of them are great for cash flow. They don't come with deductions. They don't require promotions. And so there's a lot of other reasons that look into those accounts. Just from a practical perspective, I'm curious, where do you start? Like, I'm not even sure where I would look to be like, oh, hey, like, how do we get into, like, how do we get in front of these like non-traditional sales channels? Like, who does one even reach out to, to do that kind of expansion? As luck would have it, I was the director of sales for food service in on-premise for Coke's venture and brands division before I started this business. And so mm-hmm. that was what I did. I took honest kids to happy meals and to Wendy's kids meals and to workplaces. And so that is a channel of business that I felt like I had a really keen understanding of. And I feel really fortunate that the person I split the country with actually came to join us at Partake to lead that segment of business for us. So we looked uh, within our own network and kind of in my own background to be able to deepen the relationships there. So what's next? The store list is growing, non-traditional channels are growing. What do the next steps of Partake's growth look like? What's the strategy from here moving forward? Sure. I think it's deepening our existing retailer relationships. So whether that's offering our our seasonal products to them, whether it's getting secondary displays, whether it's taking new innovation to those retail partners, I feel really fortunate that I I think we have a really marquee group of retailers. So how do we best service them and really like maximize those relationships? So we're focused on that. We're focused on social impact. The causes that are important to us are eradicating childhood food insecurity and working to diversify the natural foods industry. And so, you know, what can we do to develop that ecosystem? And then also what can we do to support food insecure families? So figuring out how to really grow in those ways. We, I think, also are thinking about you know, as our business has grown, our operational needs have changed. So we're looking at automated equipment with our our manufacturing partners in, in different ways to be able to bring the best quality product to our consumers to make them as accessible as possible and to give back as our business grows. As you guys are looking at innovation and, you know, new product lines, begs the question, when you were doing the initial expansion, or at least the expansion from you know 350 stores to 5,000 stores, or even beforehand, was there a lot of iteration in your product line during that period and prior to that period? Or was it largely the same set of SKUs just scaling? Largely the same set of SKUs. I think I feel really fortunate that we spent the first couple of years. So we launched in August of 2017. We went into our first national retailer of May in May of 2020. So nearly three years that gave us time to iterate on the product, to be able to make sure that it was scalable, to understand what people liked and what they didn't like about it. And don't get me wrong, we're constantly tweaking. We're constantly looking at new ingredient innovation. But for the most part, the product has stayed the same. Were there any other big inflection points along the way that are worth mentioning? You know, I think the outside funding in in June of 2019 was a big one. I think in May of 2020, after George Floyd was killed, that was a a really 
weird time in our business because we had just launched Target nationally. And so business was good. And then this really unfortunate circumstance happened. And then this like really overdue conversation started to happen. And because of that, we started to get attention as one of the few BIPOC owned nationally scaled food brands. And that felt kind of weird. And it made me feel even more passionate about kind of doubling down on our social mission efforts. But I think that was probably another big inflection point for the business. And then at the end of last year, we raised a $5 million Series A from some really fantastic partners. We continued to work with Marcy. Rihanna, the singer, joined us as an investor, as did her, the singer. Brought on industry greats like John Forker and, and my old boss at Coke, who has been the chief growth officer at Beyond Meat. So we got a really great group of people around the table with our Series A that I feel really grateful for. How do you think the natural food industry could diversify? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and don't get me wrong, I'm New York City based myself. It feels like the companies that are getting funded, that are getting the attention are all in New York and LA and San Francisco and Boulder. You know, do we look out, how do we look outside of those markets? How do we start funding founders that look different, that have different experiences that are bringing something totally different to the market? So I think a lot of it starts with funding. I think that some retailers are doing great work. I was fortunate enough to be a founder in residence for Target's Forward Founders Program this year, and they had 30 underrepresented founders go through an all-summer-long curriculum of how to win at retail and how to do business with a large retailer like Target and how to better understand your business metrics. And so I think as retailers and investors and all the stakeholders in the ecosystem start to want to make a change, it will happen. What is a pitfall other companies run into that you feel like you avoided? I think growing distribution too quickly. Don't get me wrong, 350 stores to 5,000 was a big jump, but we had been doing the business for almost three years at that point. And so I felt like I had a good handle on the marketing that moved the needle for us. I had a good relationship with our co-packer. I understood our cost structure. So I think that's one thing. And then I think getting into bed with the wrong investors. We've been really fortunate that we have like just a good group of good people, good, smart people around the table. And I think that people sometimes think of investor relationships, not as the marriage that they are, but they are long-term marriages that are, are harder probably to get out of than a real marriage. So I, I think being really choosy about the partners that you work with. What is a pitfall that you fell straight into? Tricky. Don't get me wrong. I make some mistakes every day. Oh, you know, one that I fell into was we were about to launch and I had this vision for the products. I reached out to a food blogger because I had no real understanding on the difference between something you make in your kitchen and something that's commercialized at scale. And so I thought I had negotiated this wonderful rate and the person created what I asked for, but would have never worked in actual like a real contract manufacturing situation. And at the time, or still, it was a lot of money. So that was a pitfall, not understanding the real like R&D and commercialization process. What marketing channels are currently the most important for you? I think if COVID taught me, I mean, I feel like COVID gave me a, a stark look at this. Like, I think they're all important because you never like, I don't think you can put all your eggs in one basket. Like I would look at friends who had a huge like workplace office coffee business and be like, gosh, I wish we had more of that business. But then when the world shut down and people stopped going to work, they were in a world of hurt. Or like, I think similarly, people who rely solely on like their D2C sales with the iOS changes that you can't control, like that has an impact. I think that putting too many eggs in one basket is never a healthy thing. So I think for us, it's important to diversify our market strategy, our channel strategy. And, you know, while we have focus on key priorities, make sure that we're not too reliant on one specific thing. Are there any channels that over COVID have gotten way more attention than previously that have really panned out well for you guys? 
I think the traditional grocery store, I feel like everyone was so focused on moving to digital and moving to D to C and it was so hot. And with the grocery stock ups that we saw, I, I think that showed the grocery store while digital has grown very quickly and light years ahead uh, of kind of where it was before COVID. It feels like I don't think that grocery stores are going anywhere anytime soon. What is a challenge um, that you're currently facing that you're trying to overcome? I think just making sure that we grow the team deliberately and that we really nurture the culture and take the time to develop our employees and provide them with appropriate training and support that they need to be able to thrive when things are moving really quickly. It's easy to kind of forget that. But I think your people and your customers are your most valuable assets. And so making sure you nurture those relationships is really important. Where can our listeners find you? Your listeners can find us on all social media channels at Partake Foods, our website at partakefoods.com, and at retailers like Target, Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Kroger across the country. Are there any additional questions that I should be asking that I haven't yet? No, I feel like it was a very robust discussion of where we've been and where we're hoping to go and the good stuff and the bad stuff along the way. All right. Well, Denise, thank you so, so much for your time. Are there any other parting words that you'd like to share? I appreciate you having me. And for me, I think the thing that it's been really important to remember is it's okay to start small. I think whenever we first launched, I felt like lots of twinges of envy when I saw like huge fundraising or huge distribution announcements. And I think I don't want to say slow and steady wins the race because that's not the case either, but it's okay to not start in a really huge way. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. I really appreciate the time. Congratulations on the rocket growth sustained over all this time. I think there's a lot of gems in here for brand owners that are trying to achieve the same. And thank you so much. I can't uh, tell you how much we appreciate having you here. Thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to share my story. Take care, Luke. Take care. Hey, podcast listener, that's it for us this week. As always, it's a pleasure having you here. If you want to check out more episodes and learn more about us, visit ecod2c.com. See you next time.